welcome to Blink of an Eye, where we interview thought leaders and deep thinkers on trauma healing wisdom, both ancient and modern, as we learn together with experts from around the world. We also engage in captivating relational conversations with spinal cord injury heroes and innovators in our Dear Louise series. Out of one mom's trauma to integration story, Blink of an Eye brings you a collection of unparalleled and diverse views as we take you on an inspiring and unvarnished look at the true nature of trauma in all our lives. Today's episode is part of our Trauma Healing Learning Series, where we meet with esteemed experts, doctors, therapists, and healers to learn essential wisdom and practical methods, both ancient and modern, to consider in our collective trauma healing journey. This episode is sponsored by Blink of an Eye Nonprofit and by Baltimore Mediation. You may have listened in to hear Matthew Roderick from Unite to Fight Paralysis on one of our recent shows. Well, I had the honor of joining Matthew Roderick on the Unite to Fight Paralysis podcast, CureCast. Today, we will highlight that show and shed light on the inspirational work that Unite to Fight Paralysis, otherwise known as U2FP, does. U2FP follows closely and advocates passionately for cutting-edge scientific breakthroughs for individuals with severe disabilities related to paralysis, their steadfast families, and all those who share their mission to advance scientific knowledge to bring about quality of life change and to keep hope alive. For years, U2FP has tirelessly strived to establish itself as a formidable authority within the international spinal cord injury community. And the CureCast podcast has become a beacon of insight and inspiration for all those in the SCI and paralysis community for the most up-to-date scoop on the science. Their podcast highlights realms of possibility, bringing together an array of distinguished guests with impressive backgrounds on new developments in spinal cord injury. And I was honored to be on the show. Stay tuned for my conversation with Matthew Roderick, but this time as he and his partner Jason interviewed me. Today, our guest is Louise Phipps Senft. And Louise is the founder of Blink of an Eye, nonprofit organization that is committed to addressing the blink of an eye that most of us know about, which is that initial moment when everything changes in spinal cord injury. And Blink of an Eye is very close to our hearts, us in the spinal cord injury community who are very familiar with um, how much life changes and how much you don't know what you don't know when that change happens. Louise's background is in law. She's an attorney and a mediator and uh, some years back had that Blink of an Eye experience in her family. 
or a son uh, suffered a spinal cord injury. And from that experience, which many of us know about in those early days of recognizing this system, this hospital, this healthcare delivery model is uh, really in many ways broken by spinal cord injury. And how do we respond to that? And so Louise and her team have responded to that with a focus on that early period of injury by providing people resources and advocacy in that moment and even some logistical and practical tips on how to navigate those first 30 days, 60 days, 90 days. And also Louise uh, has a podcast and I was recently interviewed on that podcast and now we are interviewing Louise on the podcast. I think it's a great conversation, you know, and on a personal note, it kind of comes on the heels of uh, my own experience right around the time of my son's anniversary. I was with a family that while we were having dinner, their second son suffered a spinal cord injury. And it thrust me back to that space, that memory of that trauma. And one of the things that'll come up is a conversation with Louise about trauma and in many ways how that kind of goes as a underdiagnosed or undiagnosed effect of what happens not only to the person with the injury, but the family and the extended community, that there's a traumatic effect for everyone. And so I, I think you'll enjoy this conversation. Uh, Louise is an extraordinary person and tells a bit about the story of her family and how they've responded and her son and where he is now. Of course, very close to our hearts, close to my heart. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. As always, reach out to us at curecast at u2fp.org. And then also check the liner notes uh, for Blink of an Eye, the podcast, the organization, uh, certainly keep this in your mind when you get one of those emails. Hey, so-and-so's friend or wife or son just had a spinal cord injury. Uh, might be worth connecting them to Louise and Blink of an Eye. Here we go. We are here today with Louise Phipps Senft from Blink of an Eye nonprofit and Blink of an Eye podcast. Hopefully, some of you have heard the podcast where Louise interviewed me. Uh, now we get a chance to interview Louise on our podcast. Welcome, Louise. Mm, it's good to see you again, Matthew. You as well. And hey, Jason. Hi, Louise. Looking forward to the conversation. Of course, Jason is here. We're both in our usual spots. Louise, where are you? I'm in Cape May, New Jersey at the moment, the beautiful sands of Cape May. Which we were just talking about, the Cape May diamonds that we all have some experience with. Yeah. In fact, if someone doesn't have experience with Cape May diamonds, it's worth the trip to come and filter through the sand looking for them, these little sparkly gems made from glaciers of millions of years ago in the brackish waters where the Delaware Bay meets the ocean. And Louise, is that a home for you or are you just, uh, are you just passing through? It's a summer home for us. And it's actually where our son Archer was injured eight years ago, August 5th. Mm. Tell us about that. Uh, he was 17. He was 17 by about a week. Uh, so he had been 16 and he was uh, spending his summer here working as a cook 
and swimming and surfing and having a wonderful summer. My children have all worked at the beach in the summertime. And he, it was a hot 100 degree day, which was very unusual on the East Coast eight years ago. And he was working in a hot, hot kitchen. And when he finished, he asked if he could leave because he wanted to go take a cool dip in the ocean. And he raced down the beach and passed a couple of his friends who were in the lifeguard stand. And he's six foot four and ran, big athlete, and dove into a gorgeous wave and hit a sandbar and shattered his neck and was instantly paralyzed and rendered quadriplegic, paralyzed from the neck on down. I don't know if you know this, but that's the exact same injury of my son. And very close in age, he had a couple of weeks before his 16th birthday, but same, ran out, was body surfing. It was on the Pacific coast in Costa Rica, but dove under a wave, hit a sandbar. That was it. Yeah, um, that was it. Archer knew, uh, and I, I don't know if your son knew right away that he couldn't move yeah. and that he was paralyzed. Yeah. And then... Um, in his case, nobody saw him, and he was under the water and the waves, and so he took in a lot of water and then you know blacked out because his lungs filled up with completely filled up with water and so when one of his friends who was scanning, wondering like where he had been, it had probably been close to three minutes, maybe longer and um so when they pulled him out. They had to try and get the water out of his lungs. And that water intake was as complicated in his recovery Mm -hmm. as the smash of his C2 to C5 and severing Mm -hmm. of his spinal cord. So uh, so I'm hearing you use the term severed. And that was going to be one of my questions here is just the severity of his injury. Is he considered a complete injury? He is. He's a complete. And how old is Archer now? Just turned 25 on July 20th. Uh, congrats. Yeah, thank you. Congrats for him. Really amazing. He uh, he asked if we'd drive him to New York City because he wanted to see art galleries for a couple days. He was a beautiful artist. He's still, you know, once an artist, always an artist. And now he wants to build a studio for other artists and have his own works that might youngest son i have five children and my youngest son became archer's arms and hands to paint what he was creating using uh the tops of his shoulders and so he really wants to get back into the art world and now as an adult and for we were just along for the ride but it was uh special it was just last weekend right on the heels of his birthday it was very lovely Excellent. Boy, a lot of similarities between us and our kids. And we just finished a podcast with my son, Gabriel, a long one um, that I actually just finished listening to this morning. And a good portion of it was talking about the artistic process, you know, both mining the soul as well as the sort of practical implications of being an injured artist and also how being injured has influenced Gabriel. I'm sure that experience has influenced your son. 
Archer? You know, tremendously. I I would say Archer, who's always been, you know, cerebral, he's just a super smart guy and thoughtful and like Gabriel, a musician, Archer, an artist, a designer. You know, that you see the world in in different ways. And um and for him, he went through with a lot of his art really deciding and and incorporating a lot of stained glass. And that I think was influenced because that's what he looked through for so long when he was recovering and not able to speak for six months. And then the stained glass that we had installed in the new room that we had to create on the first floor of our home in Baltimore. And putting that into his works, you know, he could perhaps talk about it because I've never actually talked to him about what it means to him and his work, but he did tell me that he was influenced by that, just all the different fragments, but that they can come together and create something very beautiful. And then I know that part of his journey were some of the things that he created from what he could see from the position of not being able to move for so long and, and recovering, trying to trying to live to get his lungs working again when when so many doctors and hospitals said that he was a failure, a respiratory failure, a ventilator failure, uh, would never breathe on his own again, might not live. And his real determination, I think using his mind to really focus on like cellular capacity of his body and that same mental ability can now find its way through art he has a new series he calls dopamine drive-by huge canvases four by <laughs> five foot canvases they're very technical archer uh, was an engineer at, at penn new penn so he's he's very mathematical but very um conceptual with his expression through his art. So I think he was curious about where he found himself in the art world. And the galleries that we just visited were a real beautiful expression of what others are doing. And I think where he said, and so am I. Hmm. And that was really <laughs> just an elixir as a mom. Yeah, yeah of course. <laughs> yeah, to have that conversation with him. Is Archer's work available um, somewhere for like our audience to be able to to uh, appreciate? Is there a, a link to any any kind of online content or? He does have a company called Slime Yard, and it's slimeyard.com. and he runs a lot of his works that have you know take months and months and months to create and produce, but he'll do them as posters and. Um, He's also got some apparel, you know, a little merch going. <laughs> um, I think Archer's, you know, we'll see what happens, but you wouldn't know if you went to Slime Yard that Archer was uh, tetraplegic. Mm. He, he'd never claimed that as part of his art. He always said he was still the same person. And I think we all are from the genesis of when we were created. And we are also always evolving. And perhaps his journey will be to be claiming both at some point. And I think that may have come out of this past weekend, too. 
But you can talk to Archer. You can ask him these questions. <laughs> he can certainly <laughs> okay. answer them a lot better than I. We'll put that in the liner notes so if people can uh, have a look and uh, follow him. Yeah, SlimeYard.com. He'd love that. He works hard at it. So this all happened uh, to Archer in the blink of an eye. Let's uh, let's talk about you are the CEO of the Blink of an Eye nonprofit. Uh, you have a background in law, mediation, uh, trauma, and healing from trauma uh, in a variety of different ways. We'll also put a link to your uh, nonprofit so people can read about you. And obviously, there's a bio in the liner notes. Give us a little launching pad from that blink of an eye moment, I'm assuming that's what it comes from. It sure um, does. The blink of an eye that happened in your life and our lives. Um, what, what, what happened? What was the experience that triggered uh, your assessment of a need for what you do now? Well, without a doubt, all of our lives, yours with Gabriel and Jason, yours with you and mine as, as mama of Archer, all of our lives changed in the blink of an eye. The genesis, I would say, was the recognition that this was Archer's journey, and I also was on my own journey. Uh, because if you look at your life through the lens of a system, a family system, and not just with the traditional family as we think of it, but the friends and all the people whom you engage with and work with, and worship with, and recreate with, and on it goes, we are touching each other, and we're all connected in that way. And so my years at that time, almost 25 years as a lawyer, transformative mediator, and a teacher, conflict theory, relational conflict theory, and an author of the book, Being Relational, that's a bestseller, um, in the field of, of leadership, but interaction, quality interactions. You can't help when you are mediating high conflicts and very complicated, difficult circumstances for people to develop a deep wellspring of compassion and to also realize, you know, but for the grace of God, there go I. And I got more and more interested over the years before Archer was injured and how it is that conflict affects the body. And that took me into uh, paths of studying neuroscience, and then that took me into studying more of high conflict and then trauma. And one of the pieces that's always been part of me is I've been drawn to others suffering in a way to sort of awaken in them the capacity of transformation and never forced. You can only follow that, but you can certainly help to foster that. And so I think all these pieces came together in the blink of an eye. Given that background and experience, this may be an unanswerable question, but you step into the hospital. You step into an ICU, acute care, physicians, a system, I, if I'm not mistaken, I think you have it on your website that, you know, there's a, there's a lack of responsiveness institutionally to spinal cord injury, and you wanted to address that. So I'm assuming with everything you just described, you're sort of bringing that all to 
that experience with your own child, right? Recognizing things that, you know, maybe other folks are oblivious to just based on your experience in this space. What was the collision that happened? There's a lot of um, blindness to what happens for spinal cord injured people and their families through the eyes of the medical profession and not because they don't want to be aware or to see it, but the medical profession is very siloed. And so while the genesis of Blink of an Eye came from, I realized I God had almost put me in the right place to fill a gap, but the gap got defined by the personal experience when we were with Archer and he was very complicated, you know, with a complete injury and with all the water intake of the lungs and all the bacteria and on every type of life support except uh, dialysis to keep him alive. And that the medical profession had no awareness of the upside down quality of the lives of the family. And you're literally like, you know, how do you care for other members of your family? How do you not go to work now and stay bedside? How do you make sure that everything that is given to your loved one, you're writing it down because medical errors are occurring and with, from, from what is in a drip bag to what to a dosage and that, and, mm-hmm. and, and it's not because of, of just blatant negligence. It's because the medical profession cares deeply, but they are not infallible. And there are lots of other people whom they're caring for, but more importantly, how few people in the medical profession had spinal cord injury expertise in the, in the crisis. We hear about spinal cord injury experts who are in stem cell and in implants and very exciting things for us. But we're talking in the early stages of just how the neck is even set and then how the body is cared for. And some real basic pieces are that the body has to be turned every few hours. You know, you can get a bed sore so quickly or very basic pieces that we know how a spinal cord injured person, the, especially if the spinal cord has been severed and one is a complete injury, but even if it's been bruised and there's an incomplete injury that the central nervous system is fighting to re-regulate itself and the most important position to place a spinal cord injured person in is upright. But it's the opposite of what would be happening in an ICU or in a bed for a week or two weeks or even a month. And so when I would learn these things, and I learned many of them through the networking that I was privileged to have as a mediator of all those years and people for whom I had mediated you know, texting them and calling them and, you know, late at night and can you help me and can you connect me to this and to that, I realized I don't know how others would do this and and have, have a success story where they didn't lose their loved one or lose a lot of, of time or how they could get around things that would really set them back. Uh, like ins- other insurance issues and bed wounds and how you can, you know, get transported out of a, of a hospital that doesn't have the care that you need someplace else and how to navigate that when you don't even know that there is another place that has spinal cord injury expertise. And so it all converged. That was in the back of my mind 
for a long time from the beginning, but it truly took about five years to recalibrate, renormalize before Blink of an Eye really came into being. And it started with the podcast and then the nonprofit was right alongside. We'll pause now in support of our sponsors who support Blink of an Eye. We'll be right back. Blink of an Eye nonprofit is filling a gap nationwide in response to spinal cord injury trauma for families in the first hours and days of injury. With fewer than 20 hospitals in the country having SEI expertise, Blink of an Eye has navigators who themselves have been there as SEI survivors and who are trained in relational approaches to trauma, who are available 24-7 to support families, empowering them on their journeys, navigating their lives, and interacting with medical staff for the first 30 days. The nonprofit's mission is to transform the SCI crisis experience into an extraordinary one, despite the devastation. When you learn of a newly injured SCI family, call Blink of an Eye on their toll-free number, 1-844-41-BLINK. You can also learn more and get involved with Blink of an Eye at www.blinkofaneye.org. Blink of an Eye is sponsored by Baltimore Mediation. Since 1993, Baltimore Mediation has been leading the way in a relational approach to conflict and problem solving. They are national leaders in teaching and providing fully immersive and experiential online training in mediation and conflict transformation skills. Register for the next course at www. BaltimoreMediation.com. The quality of your interactions at work, at home, and in your daily life will be transformed. And you will create more well-being for yourself and others. Better process, better outcome. Baltimore Mediation. And now, back to the show. So I feel like um, uh, it's got a lot of good context and background for your heart um, as to why you started the organization. And we've been kind of flirting, I think, with uh, I'm getting hints and clues as to uh, what you do uh, as you've been talking. But can you lay out for us what are the missions and goals of Blink of an Eye and um, what programs do you have and and how – how do you leverage um, Blink of an Eye for the SCI community? Our mission is to create the extraordinary experience for spinal cord injured families and medical teams despite the devastation in the first hours and days and weeks of injury. And we have a HEAL team um, that's a little play on words, um, but it's a rapid response, like a SEAL team. A rapid response team where we fly, drive, train, whatever it takes to go bedside once we get the call to the person who's injured and to their family. And we're there for a day with them. And it's in that HEAL team, which stands for, it's an acronym for bringing hope, for bringing empowerment, bringing advocacy, and bringing logistical and and medical tips to them and and not like you're drinking out of a fire hose, but in a way that's all trauma-informed. Blink of an Eye also offers a navigator 
for every family for the first 30 days, 24-7. And our navigators, whom we call our family navigation and support team, are all spinal cord injured families or paraplegics or tetraplegics. We oftentimes will have called our tetraplegics quadriplegics, but there's a change underway in the spinal cord injury profession, moving to para and tetra, uh, where quadriplegic is also um, inclusive of anyone who has a degenerative spinal condition, whereas tetraplegic and paraplegic indicate an acute injury. And so we have families of tetras and paras and tetras and paras themselves, all of whom are trained in how to be neutral, uh, which is basically taking all the trainings of mediation to be a little m mediator and to empower and how one does that, bringing a lot of information, but following and to be trauma informed. And then that navigator is with that family for the first 30 days. And then we have found now three months and six months beyond because the relationship is so strong. But the navigator, blink of an eye, has a wraparound team. So the navigator is then supported by a wraparound team of experts and a spinal cord injury medical expert team. We have two of the top 10 neck surgeons on our team. We have radiologists on our team. We have a handful of neurourologists on our team pulmonologist, um, and we're moving to have a wound care specialist on our team as well. And so the navigators have the benefit of this high, high uh, degree of, of spinal cord injury medical knowledge at their fingertips for what comes up. And also a wraparound team of insurance experts, um, ADA experts, trauma experts, mental health experts, integrative health experts, breath work experts, um, all of whom support the navigators to support the families. And so that's really at the heart of what Blink of an Eye nonprofit provides to families. It's our secret sauce. And then we have our digital resource library that's underway that we are, have some active uh, partnerships in development to create what will be something that we see as an essential resource for families and their friends and medical teams who might not have spinal cord injury expertise. And for medical teams, as our top surgeons say, you know, we know everything about the neck up. We, we don't know about the experience. We don't know about the rest of the body down. So it's to be a, uh, using YouTubes to be a very easily accessible, what do I need to know in the first 36 hours if I'm a doctor, if I'm a nurse, if I'm a PT? What do I need to know if I'm a family member? What do I need to know if I'm a friend for how I can help, what to say, what not to say, what's helpful, what's not helpful? And so we well, are in the process of creating the digital resource library. It sounds like this organization is filling a very necessary gap that exists somewhere between a model system and say maybe a, a very uh, a very rural um, hospital that might not not might not have access to this uh, comprehensive integrative team because I know what you're describing sounds very similar to to the, the the type of care that I received at a model system rehab hospital um, that did operate as a team and brought all of these uh, incredibly important components, but in the United States 
uh, alone, what percentage of the spinal cord injured, acutely injured spinal cord injured population is able to go to one of these model systems and receive this comprehensive care? It is, it's very, very small. I can imagine, I can only imagine that this type of care and support to an acutely injured person and their family, it's just uh, invaluable. Does the organization focus um, specifically on maybe underserved populations or um, underserved areas? And how does someone find out about the organization if they, if no, if you jump into this thing in the blink of an eye, um, you don't even know what you don't know about spinal cord injury, let alone what resource, resources are available to you. So a couple of questions there. Um, where do you focus and then how do you let people know uh, that you exist? I'll start with where, where you began, which is just filling this gap. We, we do very purposefully believe that we are filling an, an essential, a, a gap that, that needs essential attention. Take a guess at how many hospitals there are in the United States, just hospitals in the U.S. for fun. <laughs> no idea. 25,000. Hospitals, okay. Um, 25,000. I'll take a guess. I'll just say, well, we have 50 states. Uh, let's average that we got like, I don't know, what, 20 per state or something, probably more. There are 6,090 hospitals in the United States. And guess how many have spinal cord injury expertise? 20%. <laughs> 10 12? Less than half of 1%. And Matthew, you're right on it. It's under 20. It's like 14. We also know 80% of spinal cord injuries are healthy, vibrant, active people recreating on vacation in motor vehicle accidents. They're everywhere. And they're particularly around water and around ski slopes and around, you know, playing fields um, and the skies, you know, all the places where where we go for sports and for recreating and out in nature. And we know that people get flown at best uh, in the state or might be a near state nearby to a level one trauma center at best. And most level one trauma centers do not have spinal cord injury expertise. They're amazing. They have amazing staff. They have well-intended staff and they can stabilize but they do not have the spinal cord injury expertise. So what do we do? We can't change and have everyone go to the 14 places that have spinal cord injury expertise, or maybe we can educate the trauma centers, the level one centers, but we can do that maybe more efficiently from the inside out through the families whom we can help empower to then make the requests that they need of the staff while they're teaching and doing for themselves, for their loved ones, what the staff can then do. And so that's a, that's a real key aspect of the advocacy part of HEAL and then what the navigators will move forward. How people find us, uh, just yesterday I was speaking to the, we have a partnership with USLA, which is the United States Life Saving Association. And I was speaking to a hundred of the guards in the beach patrol in Ocean City, Maryland. And we have a card. It has, we have a toll-free number. It's 1-844-41-BLINK. 
and they can call that number. What's interesting about those in Beach Patrol or any EMS worker is here they are dedicated to saving lives and to putting sometimes their lives at risk to save other people's lives. And they rarely ever know what happens to the people whom they save in the blink of an eye. We see that the service that Blink of an Eye is providing can also have a real mental health, if not even a, a spiritual component for those who did the saving, who give the card to the families or tell them about that because then there can be a link. If we know that person came from this beach, um, we, we know with the beach patrol to be able to say, you know, they made it, um, they're alive. Uh, they they live in wherever they live. Um, there's such a relief and such a quest and a thirst to have known, but it gets walled off because it's just not part of what typically would ever come back to them in terms of information. So it's a real wonderful partnership that we have with USLA. We also are just really launching this new toll-free number because we typically, people will learn of us through CureCast. They'll learn of us through others. We are all spinal cord injured families. And so we, as you well know, I'm sure people will call you. Did you hear about or did you see or there's a newspaper article and someone sends it to you or sends a screenshot of something that they saw in another state and it reminds them of you because they know of you because they love you. Those are the, those are our people. That's how in our first year, we're in our third year, but in our first year, that's all, all of those whom we heard about came through those channels. Hey, we want to take a quick break to thank our new sponsor, Mobius Mobility. Are you ready to level up your mobility device? The iBot is a power wheelchair that lets users go more places independently with less hassle and stress. The iBot allows someone with a disability to reach for that high cabinet, look people in the eye, climb curbs and stairs, or go to the beach. To overcome obstacles that get in the way, call Mobius Mobility at 833-346-4268 to start your journey. Now let's get back to the conversation. You use the term in your description of the heel team and the navigators uh, several times trauma informed. Uh, can you explain what that means and how that, why that's critical in your contact with families that are experiencing trauma? To be trauma informed means that you understand the experience of trauma, that trauma is not an event. And so, for instance, when we think about trauma medically, you'd have a trauma unit, right? You'd have the ICU and the trauma unit, which means there's been something catastrophic in terms of an injury. But a trauma is a, an experience. And when the body has been harmed, that sets into motion a whole physiological experience as well as a, a mental and an emotional and a spiritual experience. And at its apex, all of us are wired to stay alive. 
And so when we experience trauma, the loss of a loved person or something that we can't make sense of and we are overwhelmed, it's different than just you're in a bad place and there's a lot of conflict about something that you're having to work through or it could even be high conflict. But trauma, like blink of an eye, it comes out of nowhere for you and it's so huge and so not only unexpected, but so out of your ken of reference of understanding that it floods the brain, floods the system with chemicals that create two reactions. And this is for all of us and no matter how smart or and well-read or well-traveled or deeply earthy and grounded we are, we all go into two states. One is of numbness and the other is of hypervigilance. And so to work with those who are in a trauma state, I certainly was in a trauma state of complete collapse in the first hours of learning of Archer's injury after I was hyper vigilant tunnel vision driving to a place I had never been to before, no GPS, no phone, no anything on how to get there, following hospital signs, literally, you know, the the blue with the white H. I couldn't tell you to this day anything else except I had to get to Atlantic City. My son was in Atlantic City, had, had something had happened to him. And so that experience tends to, for people who are experiencing trauma, it will last in different forms for hours and days and weeks and months. And if it's not attended to, it also can get stuck in the body, cellularly and with foggy thinking. And later, it can get trapped in our organs and and cause disease and make us sick. And so the HEAL team comes in with that trauma-informed lens. Real quick question. I, I wanted to go back to where you said uh, there, there's these two, there are these two states of hypervigilance and numbness. Are you saying that folks that have experienced trauma will tend to hang out in one of these areas over the other? Or are you saying that these two characteristics will basically increase together uh, in, in that person's life? Yeah, it's a great question. Our brains are wired to keep us alive. So the numbing that we experience and the hypervigilance can actually come side by side. And depending on how one lives in them, as you've just talked about, Jason, for a period of time, in just one or with both or or one mainly more than another, that's a very, very personal journey. But both of them are, we have chemical reactions that are sent to have us experience both. And so it explains many things why, if you're asking even for a consent form to be signed, And a a person might not even know how to spell their own name because they've shut down. And one could think we now have to take her or him to a psych ward. Not at all. It's actually one of the most intelligent responses of the brain, right? Numbing the person out to keep them alive. So practically, this means that your team 
is very conscious of these responses, understands uh, the context, and then applies that in their interaction. You know, because I, as as you were describing that, I was thinking back to, I mean, I probably lived more predominantly in the hypervigilant state. That's just how I responded. But my wife periodically was in the numb state. And so there was a, sometimes a collision there, right? Even between us. And so I could see, you know, I never really thought about it before, but I could see where a family could be all over the board and, and changing, right? You know, one day numb and one day hypervigilant. So I, it makes sense that your team uh, would need to recognize that, understand it in order to navigate it effectively and be most efficacious in the work with the families that they meet with. Yeah, you just named something so important, Matthew, because the trauma experience is so personal, so so we can map out physiologically what happens and we can anticipate and expect and meet that with with love and with I I feel you and and you can feel me if you can, and you're not alone. But whether it is shutting down and being numb or moving into a hyper alert state and on it and all the things that need to happen and, and even like taking charge and like a general and doing this and doing that. And, and, he, and people might even think like, how did he know that? Or how is she doing that? It's all fueled by the same chemical reactions that are set off to keep you alive so that you can keep your loved one alive. And it can certainly look very different in a family and in a family system can create conflict when someone is shut down and another person is revved up and leading and all the things that need to happen and how it is that both of them are intelligent responses. They just don't necessarily marry so well when you're trying to get along and think of, you know, you also have a partnership and you have a marriage and you've got parenting and you've got, who knows, running a business. And that's all part of the trauma experience. As you continue to describe those two responses, uh, it sounds to me like maybe it's different ways of saying uh, sympathetic or parasympathetic uh, responses very much so to, to how your body how your body is going to respond the fight or flight or or fawn there must be some similarities there maybe it's just uh, like common language or it's all the same system you're you're very wise and astute to pick that up and just to take that a little further when you think about spinal cord injury right the entire parasympathetic uh, system and what we all know with autonomic dysreflexia right? How it is that those who are spinal cord injured experience AD because the parasympathetic nervous system is trying so hard to do what it is wired to do, which is to regulate the body and, and everything, right? Temperature as well as, you know, the what we're talking about with trauma, the, the emotional qualities and the cognitive capacity, so it's all part of this amazing, you know, divine central nervous system. But there are parallels um, and very important parallels as we think of things through the trauma-informed lens for the body as well as for the reactions and the reactivity that we have to external stimuli. So where do you see this going? Um, 
I, I imagine uh, when you first describing the team and the navigators, you know, and you mentioned drive or fly or train to, you know, meet with a family, you know, there are injuries happening every day all across the country. Um, you're not seeing everyone, obviously. You're doing what you can. Um, so I have a couple of questions. Like, wh- where do you see this going? Do you see Blink of an Eye as a sort of ambassador of this kind of care pathway as a, as sort of evangelists for transforming the healthcare system's response to spinal cord injury? And then how do you see, if, and I saw you nod, so I'm thinking maybe that's kind of spot on where you see the future or the vision that you have. And then how how is that funded? How are, how are you funded now to do the things that you do and what kind of collaborations do you see as necessary to deliver and transform the system, the, the clinical pathway for acute care of spinal cord injury and, and even beyond, right? Uh, what, where do you see this going? How do you see it unfolding? What, how do you see a role? And then how do you see a role for others to play? We founded Blink of an Eye on a vision of six pillars the sixth was to evangelize the healthcare response to spinal cord injury. So we see that as we'll get to that when we do really well on the front end with our family support and navigation team. It started with the podcast. So podcast on what is one, one mom's life experience. And then now with trauma healing, learning experts, and then also spinal cord injury heroes and innovators. And that was just to open people's eyes to trauma and to a trauma-informed lens in their lives, whatever their lives were. And then when the nonprofit really focused on what our core mission was going to be, it was to go bedside and to be with families in this critical first 30 days. And we realized that in order to also bring the authenticity that we needed, people needed incredible training and we needed to have the best spinal cord injury medical team. So we then started to put together the medical team and began to train and recruit navigators. And then we realized your very astute comment, well, we were not going to be able to get to all the spinal cord injured people, which which for me uh, was not daunting. It was more of an opportunity, like how can we get to them? How can we help them? And that was the digital resource library concept. Um, and then I'll just, I'll fill it out. But our, our fourth was through the podcast, I was learning that there are these medically unexpected and unexplained spinal cord injury recoveries. So I'd like to contribute back to the field with a collaboration with NIH to study these folks. And we have about four right now. And I believe we just need eight to 10 to form a, a group to be able to turn over, we would hope, to NIH, anybody listening on that. Um, and then uh, and then we have our training that we would like to make available for healthcare and as we truly transform um, the healthcare industry. But where we are now is we have an exciting uh, partnership with one of the model facilities um, Sheltering Arms Institute in Richmond, Virginia, and with VCU Hospital, which is a 
designated SCI and TBI facility hospital, uh, one of four in the country, they believe that blink of an eye is a national model. And so we're working right now in partnership with them to pilot how it is that we'll serve 90 acute families a year whom they uh, treat and, and see and then transitioning them into one of the best of the rehab centers. But how we can learn from the others whom we travel to see across the country and those at Sheltering Arms and VCU and a few of their other feeder hospitals, UVA and, and two other hospitals, for what is it that is most efficacious, as you said earlier, how is it that we can roll in those learnings to become even better, but to take all this knowledge and put it into the digital resource library that anybody, the friends of the 18,000 acute spinal cord injured people a year can access. And they could access it in the same way that they would be accessing us as the HEAL team and the family navigation and support teams. That's that's the dream, that's the hope, that's the goal, that's what's underway. And in terms of funding, we are very grateful, bottom of my heart grateful, to the Craig Nielsen Foundation. Uh, I wrote the concept paper two years ago for the family navigation and support team, and they believed in it. I, I wrote, Jason, about a gap that needed to be filled and they believed it is and was a gap that needed to be filled. So they were our first funders, and now we're back to them. Uh, we hope that they they will be supporting something much larger with capacity building and the creation of the digital resource library. We also are working on an, another community partnership with United Spine, U.S. Spine Association, who also say this is a gap that they've known has existed for years and years, but weren't sure how to fill it. And so it was a really beautiful marriage. And there will be many partnerships that also um, evolve out of that. And, you know, CureCast um, and other organizations uh, we just interviewed on the podcast, our Blink of an Eye podcast, you know, Roy Tuscany with High Fives. And we're interested in being a liaison for many other spinal cord injured focused nonprofits whom families might not ever hear or know about until their years and years, if at all, into their recovery. And so we intend to be growing with funding and with those who have the capacity to fund infrastructure and generous individuals who are interested in, in supporting the work and then in partnerships, because we're all in this together for how it is that we refer and then how it is that we are liaisons back to other informed sources and, and CureCast, for instance, being one of those sources. I'm curious, one other piece of a more personal nature in one sense, more recently, but this happens with some frequency that folks will reach out to us. I was traveling last week and... Uh, meeting with a family who had a spinal cord injured son and uh, was traveling for looking at uh, spaces for our annual symposium for next year and uh, left uh, dinner with this family who have a uh, uh, son about my son's age, similar injury. And unfortunately, oddly and statistically kind of mind-blowing, uh, their younger son, I got a call when I got back to my hotel that their younger son had just dove into a pool 
and broke his neck and uh, oh called me right when I got to the hotel and um, we went back and forth. I shared a number of texts, but one of the things immediately he was asking is, uh, I think his first question was about cooling. Are you familiar with anyone that is cooling uh, the body, you know, in that acute phase? And so I sent him some information and then uh, I also sent him this uh, relatively newer practice that Jason and I, we just interviewed Shaker Kerpod and Candy Tiefertiller on mean arterial pressure in the management of the acute injury. And so I sent some information and they were at a, you know, a hospital without SEI expertise, you know, as you're describing. And fortunately, some of the information I sent was sh shared with the neurosurgeons. They took the time to look it up and then they began, uh, they were not aware of MAP and they began to apply it uh, in this case. And so I'm curious, just using that, and again, very, it's very personal and, and even somewhat traumatic, you know, to sort of be thrust back and think of, you know, we were at dinner talking about our other children, you know, and it was, it was very, it's a very hard coincidence, um, to experience. But I'm thinking in those situations, there's also, uh, a facet of understanding what clinical trials are being applied in the acute phase of injury, where they are, what practices, clinical practices have been adopted, but not widely adopted across the country. Is this a facet of what happens in that HEAL team? Are they also coming in with, as a potential resource to the clinicians and as a sort of a uh, mediator between the family and the clinical side to say, here's what's happening across the country, or here's what's happening in, in SCI model systems to alert both the clinical side and the family as to what options are out there. You know, there are these clinical trials happening in the acute phase of injury because timing in those cases is so critical. So I'm just curious, is there a facet of what your team does that's looking at that, that's addressing that? Gosh, um, again, this is, is, uh, is so complicated and wonderful. And I, um, my heart goes out to the family whom you just described. Um, what a, what a double blow. So one of our board members is a former Navy SEAL. He actually is SEAL Team Six and was injured, uh, became quadriplegic, tetraplegic. And two years after recovery, living, and told he would never walk again or use his arms or hands, walked with use of his arms and his hands. Medically unexplained miracle. Ryan angled. How, how does one explain that? So Ryan actually uh, came to us from a podcast listener who knew of his life, and he wanted to get involved with Blink of an Eye, and, and he has. And one of the pieces that Ryan and I have really talked about is, Ryan, do you have any hunches that all these many years ago, when you were injured in the Atlantic Ocean, and it was a time of year where it was freezing cold, and you were a seal, and you knew how to keep your your head above the water while the rest of your body did not work, you would not allow yourself to be rescued until it was the proper rescuer, and you were in the water that length of time, which was about 45 minutes, do you have any hunches about that? And he says he's got a lot of hunches about this cooling. 
And so we got interested in cooling as well, Matthew. And whether it's cooling, MAP, there's another family whom we just worked with in Chicago by way of example and what brings in another one of your observations about what might not be known in one of the hospitals, but also the excitement about telling them, but also the other side of that coin, which is a fear that we don't know this and how could we, the hospital, how could we move forward with something that is avant-garde or unregulated even perhaps or something that's being brought to us by a third party who's not medical, et cetera, et cetera. And the family in our in Chicago were at one hospital and were informed of of an injection that could happen within 24 hours. And the surgeon was told of this, but the surgeon in the hospital were not willing to allow that to happen. And so the family chose to transport their very injured son to another hospital in Chicago that was willing with an, with another surgeon to administer this. And they, they did receive it. It was about an hour after the 24 hour window. Um, but they're still quite hopeful of, of all of that. But blink of an eye could be and is a font of knowledge. But our stance on being neutral as well as being relational advocates would be right in that spot that you also mentioned. Is there a role almost mediating uh, with families and medical teams? And there is a great deal of mediating for spinal cord injured families and medical teams. And to understand the, the role in walking in the shoes of medical teams, yeah, you know, you're, you're on top of your game and you care and you're well-trained and you know what you're doing. And then someone comes in and basically says, well, that's maybe not quite right. Or would you consider doing this or what have you? And it's not necessarily a, oh my gosh, this is so amazing. Let us do this. It's, it's oft times met uh, with resistance and understandably so. Sure. Understandably so. Like, who are you? This is my turf. I know what I'm doing. Uh <laughs> Definitely. As a matter of fact, also a term that can be used would be: Are you you're interfering with medical care? I mean, you know, these are these are big, serious terms. Are just simply around um, also informing a family and bringing information. It will always and only be up to a family, but it doesn't necessarily end there. There's so much that has to happen so quickly after the injury. I mean, like I said, you've got people that are completely unaware. Nobody has studied spinal cord injury. I guarantee you there's not uh, just random folks listening to CureCast about the latest and greatest in research of spinal cord injury that are not connected to the injury. I mean, that's just not happening. When something happens to you and that trauma occurs, there is so much that you have to learn so quickly. But even the medical teams, right? There's an amount of trust that has to happen. I mean, you've got friends and family and you've got people that are citing news reports of stuff that has, has been blown up and hyped. Well, you need to get them this really quickly because, you know, ABC or NBC News, news the other day said that paralyzed man walks. And if you can get this thing shoved in their spine, you've got all of this information that is bombarding you all at once. I mean, all the stakeholders the family, the injured person, and even the clinicians that are there, right? I mean, especially if you have a team like yours that 
has the background. It has everything that it's needed. It has all of the laurels. The trust has to be developed in such a fast, such a short period of time. And <laughs> I mean, like 24 hours. Okay. It's really tricky because that's where we really need our partnerships. 24 hours. Uh, they, the surgeons will, will tell you it's, uh, you know, what the military would call the golden hour, which is an hour for how to triage someone on the field, the battlefield, who's been critically injured to get them to the right care. You've got an hour. And if you can do that, you'll save a life. And in spinal cord injury, our surgeons tell us that you, it might, we could extend that even to 36 hours, but 36 hours. And then we marry this heightened, one of the most complicated, if not the most, it's been spinal cord injury has been called the most complicated injury, especially the, the, the uh, more catastrophic spinal cord injuries. And you couple that with the trauma experience. And you can also even see that some of those in the hospitals working with the families in ICUs are potentially even secondarily traumatized when you're faced and bombarded day in and day out with people who you know, lost their limbs and are, are shot up and heinous accidents and so forth. You know, we know we're, we're walking into a, a bit of a cauldron. It might not always go so well, which is why we want to stay open to constantly learning and not just giving a lot of information if people are not ready, but also finding who is ready on their team or in their family um, who might be able to, to hear something. And families, by and large, are, are pretty ready. And one of the key pieces we've learned is to have that connection to the family um, and for them to know that one of us has been there. There's like an immediate trust that's established. And to also, you know, walk in a way that's trauma-informed and with a lot of really basic but most important information that's not basic to the medical team. It's fairly sophisticated. But there's some critical things that can happen in the first hours and, and few days of injury. And then there are critical things that can happen in the first week that can really change uh, the outcome of someone who's spinal cord injured. An example, Blink of an Eye held our first national symposium on the, on the science of trauma. And one of our uh, nationally recognized speakers uh, was Dr. Babbitt Koteb. Dr. Koteb runs a, the, a brain mapping institute out in California. And the knowledge that they have of what could be known about by physicians is years off, let alone by the family who could use it in those first hours and days. And so with partnerships, the more blink of an eye and our HEAL team and our navigators can learn in partnership, the more we can be the communication broker bringing the information that might otherwise take 7 to 21 years before it actually gets to the front line in a hospital setting. Um, and that's very exciting to us. It's um, partnerships that are very important along the way and training, uh, training for our navigators because we, we don't come in 
as ones who are going to be expert in everything under the sun, we come in with what other experts have shared with us that we can then link them to and then with our medical team. It's a really beautiful process that's underway, but that will take a lot more infrastructure as well. But those are the partnerships that we have. And you guys are, <laughs> you're, I don't need to tell you, you're, you're right on it because both of you have been there um, very personally with you, Jason, yourself, and with your son, Gabriel Matthew. We want to take another break to thank our sponsor, Lawyer Match. This episode of U2FP's CureCast is sponsored by Lawyer Match, where SCI and TBI survivors can receive valuable consulting from Galen Trine, a lawyer who practiced as a catastrophic injury attorney for eight years. We know that if for SCI survivors, having answers and access to the right resources can be life-changing. Navigating insurance and the legal system can be overwhelming. I want to take a little time to tell you about our sponsor, Galen Trine, and his firm, Lawyer Match. Galen is a legal advocate, helping connect survivors with resources and teams who can support them and their families. He listens, answers questions, and then comes up with customized plans to meet your personal needs. If you have questions or want to know more about resources that might be available to you, contact Galen at Lawyer Match directly at 970-227-4187 or email him at galen at trinelaw.net. That's G-A-L-E-N at T-R-I-N-E-L-A-W dot net. Mention you are U2FP CureCast listener and get your first consultation for free. Now let's get back to the conversation. There's one other question I want to ask. Um, uh, how do you plan for, like I'm thinking of uh, even in just the last couple of years, the people that I've interacted with or know of who are would fall in that category of underserved population. So I know of a Somali family here in the Twin Cities, a Hmong family, um, and then several Spanish-speaking families uh, with spinal cord injury. How are you addressing that and, and more in terms of the population uh, of individuals with spinal cord injury who in the healthcare system tend to be underserved because of their ethnicity, because of poverty, because of uh, immigration status, you know, a number of issues. How does that factor in? For us, it, it would be how can we serve uh, because it doesn't matter the background of one who is spinal cord injury, the issue would be how can we serve? Uh, if, for instance, uh, in your community in Minneapolis, if we needed someone who spoke the language because they didn't speak English, um, that would be our greatest barrier. And so if we could find someone to work with us there, we would we would be there. We do have two people whom we have just brought on, both of whom speak Spanish, um, and then also I'm very interested in the African-American uh, community because I've done uh, about 10 years of work in racial and social justice and uh, racism in the medical system. And not only can, can people be marginalized uh, through bias in medical systems, but cultures themselves may not be trusting enough to actually receive the medical care that they need. We pay, well, Baltimore Mediation has paid attention to all of these things for 30 years, but that knowledge 
will now be transferred over and it will be part of training that we will do with our navigators and hopefully with, with more support from Nielsen and other uh, foundations that believe in this approach. But I do believe that to say that we want to focus on the underserved, it could be very tricky because for us, we're all underserved when we experience something that's so overwhelming as a spinal cord injury. It's just a, a triple impact uh, for those who are not able to communicate or... Yeah, it's even worse. Yeah. It's yeah. even worse for those populations. The the statistics of those who are spinal cord injured um, still, still remain uh, predominantly um, white um, and middle class. They, you know, they're out recreating um, on, on highways, et cetera. But it doesn't mean that we don't serve others. In fact, I'm very desirous of that. Just anecdotally, I'll, I'll finish this piece. I've been the trainer for Safe Streets, and Safe Streets is a violence um, interventionist group of men, all of whom have been incarcerated uh, typically for murder around the drug trade. And in teaching them how to be neutral and relational advocates on the streets. And so uh, my safe streets guys have their ears to the ground on anybody in the, in the uh, inner city community in Baltimore whom they hear of would be spinal cord injury injured because it's not necessarily something that would make the news or that we'd otherwise hear about through other channels. So I think other just partnerships like that. So we might develop a partnership with the community that's underserved in Minneapolis by way of example. And maybe they could then also offer someone on our team whom we could train. And then we could perhaps have an interpreter there as well. I, I see that these things are very possible with, with funding. That's good to hear. Louise, the work that you are doing and your team is doing at Blink of an Eye is incredibly important. And I feel like there are two things that that drive that, that make it successful. Number one is the idea that we can be doing things better. This constantly in front of us is seeing this problem, um, seeing that all, almost every uh, spinal cord injury, uh, injured family is underserved. I mean, just by nature of uh, the numbers of us who become injured and the resources that are available. And then number two is just, and it comes back to what we do with U2FP, the fact that you have lived experience in this world. And it is going to be those of us, the families and those of us that have been affected in that ripple effect uh, that the injury has on our communities. It's going to be those folks with that perspective who are going to be making the changes. And so um, I, I think those are two touch points of how blink of an eye and U2FP are similar, that more has to be done. And the folks that are going to do it are those who are impacted by the injury. And that is always before us as kind of a, as a guide. And so I love that what you're doing is it does touch what we are doing. It is also different in, in, in its own world and answering a specific problem. And so I really appreciate this collaboration uh, uh, between our podcasts and being able to have you on and share your heart. And then you also having having us on as well, because it is that uniting. It is that getting together and understanding each other's perspectives that are going to make us move forward for the community in general. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I've really enjoyed hearing your heart 
and the background of what you're doing. Uh, and like I say, incredibly important. I want to add a third thing um, to Jason's two. And the third one is that coming from the work that you did, you have a system understanding. Uh, you, you have an understanding of institutions. You have an understanding of relationships. You have an understanding even of policy. And applying that to the two things Jason said, your personal experience and the notion that we need to be doing better. And that's, so that third piece is also applying that system strategy means you're going you're gonna to have both success and you're also going to have some pushback because, there, as you mentioned earlier, there's a bit of pushback for uh, trying to make system-level change. And oftentimes, stakeholders or personalities get a little defensive. Um, you know, what do you mean I need to do better? Well, no, we need we need to do better. There's a difference. So I just wanted to add that because I, I think about that all the time in our work, and I hear it as a thread through how you've described yours. And also, as Jason said, really grateful. Yeah, thanks for being on. Well, thank you for having me. And we know, even through research, that collaboration is so much more efficient and powerful and efficacious in the long run. It's messier, yeah, which is why a lot right. of people can't hang in with it. That's right. Um, because of this dynamic of excitement and resistance and push and pull. Um, but it's all about shaping and honing and being better. And we will move something forward faster when we do collaborate because truly like our grandmothers and great grandmothers and grandfathers said, two heads are always better than one. So I thank you all. And if you have listeners who are navigators or in the spinal cord injury medical space and certainly in the cure space who are interested in contacting or being part of Blink of an Eye, you had asked earlier if there were ways for people to be involved, please get a hold of us. Um, we also have a whole group of prayer warriors because we, we believe and know through quantum physics and through the noetic sciences that we can create energy fields by a collective group of people with the same intention. And so we do that for families as well. We call them our prayer warriors. Uh, so thank you all so much. I'm just delighted and we'll look forward to our further collaborations. And um, y'all just tell them how to find Blink of an Eye. It's blinkofaneye.org or blinkofaneyepodcast.com. But they can find the podcast also on blinkofaneye.org. Excellent. Thanks, Louise. Thanks, Louise. Check out U2FP for more news and follow CureCast wherever you stream your podcasts. Thank you, Matthew and U2FP for all that you do and for highlighting the work of Blink of an Eye nonprofit. As another highlight as we close today, I wanted to give a tribute to someone who has had an indelible impact on my life, Jimmy Buffett. He passed away this week at the age of 77. Jimmy Buffett wasn't just a musician. He was a storyteller, philosopher, and coastal dreamer. With songs like Margaritaville, Cheeseburger in Paradise, and Son of a Sailor, he whisked us away to a world of imagination, lightheartedness, and relaxation. 
I first met Jimmy at Sloppy Joe's Bar in Key West, Florida in 1977. I was 16 years old and he was cool and his smile and laugh lit up the bar. I was a devotee thereafter. But I never imagined how his music would be part of my own trauma healing and might be part of yours. Soothing and uplifting sound, notes, and smooth rhythmic vibration can recalibrate the central nervous system after a traumatic event and be soothing to the mind and body. And Jimmy Buffett's lyrics have a way of inviting us all into a cool, relaxed, joyful state. His sweet, light, often funny songs transport us to see and feel what we are imagining that is so pleasurable. And this ability of ours to imagine what is pleasant and possible is one avenue to trauma healing. Thank you, Jimmy Buffett. Oh, yes, there is always something delicious, something beautiful, something easy, something carefree. And we can allow our imaginations to take us there. Let's close in celebration of Jimmy Buffett's legacy and how his unique music continues to lighten the load of life for generations to come. I'm sure he's singing in paradise, his music forever alive within us. Stay tuned for more incredible insights and learnings from esteemed physicians, therapists, and healers in our Trauma Healing Learning Series. Together, we are raising the vibration for healing. Life can change in the blink of an eye. We're all in the same boat, fishing in the same hole, wonder where the same time goes. We're all in the same boat. We can all believe what we believe. Peacefully agree to disagree.
You've been listening to Blink of an Eye. We ask that you share this with anyone who may need inspiration, a lift, or who may relate. Never miss an episode. Subscribe to Blink of an Eye on our website, blinkofaneyepodcast.com, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.